Well, good morning. It's such a gift to be with you, uh, to worship together in person, seeing each other's faces and hearing each other's voices. Um, may we never take for granted the gift of embodied fellowship with each other, especially after this last year. It's so important. Um, special welcome to Tom and Josie Shaw this morning. Tom and Josie lead Sanctuary Church, um, a church plant in the city, and we're just glad to have you guys this morning. Hope it's a blessing to you. In the late 19th century in France, long before podcasts ever existed, there was a local publication called Memoirs from the Archives of Paris Police that told true crime stories. And there was one particular account of a man named Pierre Picard. Pierre was engaged to a wealthy woman, had a bunch of stuff going for him, and three people that knew him seethed with envy, and so they betrayed him. They framed him for treason, and he's convicted and sentenced to a life of slavery. Pierre ends up working for a man who's really wealthy and childless, and over time gains the affection of his master and becomes the sole beneficiary of his fortune. So Pierre goes from this slave to being incredibly wealthy. On his deathbed, Pierre is getting ready to die, and a friend of his named Alute is there, and he pays Alute a large sum of money to reveal the identities of the three men who betrayed him. Um, and so then it turns out Pierre is faking his death, and he then takes that information and goes sort of on like this vengeance spree, uh, killing each of these men one by one. This is a, a true crime story. And taking out all his revenge on them. But then in this sort of um, ultimate act of betrayal, um, at the end of all that, the friend, Alut, comes back and kills, murders Pierre, and takes all of his money. Uh, so it's this, this crazy uh, story of betrayal. And I was reading that this week and thinking about betrayal and thinking about how the greatest form of betrayal comes at the hands of those who are closest to us. The people that we love and trust. We aren't surprised when a coworker one-ups us for a promotion, right? That's going to happen. It doesn't shock us when an acquaintance that barely knows us trashes us behind our back. Those are painful experiences. But nothing is more painful than when the knife that's shoved into our back is held in the hands of someone that is so close to us, our own flesh and blood, the people that we believe we should be able to trust, our own brothers, our own sisters. Think about your own stories of betrayal. The people that were close enough to take the most vulnerable parts of you and turn them against you. Right? Those are the ones that really, really hurt. When you think about how God designed human beings, we have three fundamental relationships. We have a relationship with others, a relationship with God, and a relationship with ourself. And these three relationships are all intertwined. So when we are betrayed by others, we naturally then look to God and ask him, why would you let this happen to me? Where were you when this was taking place? Did you not see? Did you not care? Right? So that our relationship with others 
is linked to our relationship with God. If a person betrays me, I will naturally feel a sense of betrayal from God. But we also have a relationship with ourself. When we are betrayed, we will feel a sense of self-betrayal asking, why did I let that happen to me? Right? What's wrong with me that I would place myself in that kind of situation? I should have seen that coming. And we usually kind of make a vow with ourselves. I will never let something like that happen to me again. Right? And we build walls. This complex web of intertwined relationship with others, with God, and with ourselves are what make betrayal so painful, confusing, and isolating. It sort of puts us in this spin cycle, right? It can cause us to descend down into a pit of despair, losing all sense of reality, all sense of meaning, all sense of purpose. What do we do when we find ourselves in that kind of moment in our life? When betrayal has just wreaked havoc on our relationship with others, with God, and with ourselves. Jesus is the only one. He's the only person who can step into that moment, who can step into that story and bring restoration and healing. And that's because Jesus willfully subjected himself to betrayal, both from others, from the people, and from God, right? When Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? He was betrayed by humanity and allowed himself to be betrayed by God willfully in order to bring a kind of redemption, to make a redemption possible in all of our betrayal stories that have wreaked havoc on our relationship with others, with God and with ourselves. That goodness of God is Joseph's only hope in today's text. And it's our only hope when we face similar experiences of betrayal. Let me pray and then we'll jump into this story. Jesus, we are all victims and perpetrators of betrayal this morning. And the truth is, Jesus, none of us, no matter how horrible our circumstances, none of us is a greater victim than you. Jesus, you endured the cross, scorning its shame. You sat down at the right hand of the Father. And we confess this morning that we often live as though that were not true. We live, God, as though you don't understand our pain. We live as though you cannot redeem our pain. We live as though our suffering, the betrayal we've experienced, has no meaning. And we confess that we would rather stay victims. And so we need you today. Holy Spirit, would you come and bring your word to life? Would you bring your gospel to bear upon us? Would you change us, Jesus? Conform us into your image and likeness. Be our helper, our advocate, our redeemer. We thank you for the work that you will do as we just look at your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
If you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. Otherwise, all the scriptures are in those slides for you. Last week, we opened up a series on the life of Joseph from the Old Testament, and the title of that sermon was Joseph the Favorite. And we looked at the tragic generational sin of favoritism that began first with Abraham's relationship with his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And then we saw it develop more with Jacob and Esau, and then it reaches full fruition in the way that Jacob parented his kids. Genesis 37, three says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And to signify this, he gives Joseph a coat of colors, a rare and expensive garment that relieved Joseph of the normal duties of a teenage son. Jacob's preference for Joseph, his 11th born son, was so potent that his older brothers envied and detested him for it. Genesis 37, four says they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Okay, they couldn't even utter a kind word to their brother. His own brothers despised his very existence. To make it all worse, Joseph shows up with these two dreams, right? And in both of those dreams, he's standing at the center and his brothers and family members are standing around him, bowing down to them. And we talked about how this is a great opportunity for Jacob, the father, the family, to gather everyone together and interpret this dream in a way that offered blessing and life to his family. But because he's passive and lacking in wisdom and he hasn't dealt with his own generational sin of favoritism, he misses this opportunity. Okay, so it's not surprising that in the next scene of the story, um, there's a brutal act of betrayal from his older brothers. Let's pick it up in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Good job, Jacob, really wise. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. There's a few things that are worth noting here. Um, Shechem is 50, not, about 50 miles north of Hebron where Jacob and his family live. Not long before this scene, in Genesis 34, Dinah travels up to Shechem. If you remember Dinah, she is Leah's daughter, okay? The sister of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Joseph's oldest of all his siblings, his oldest brothers. While Dinah is in Shechem, she gets raped by the son of the leader of that town. So Joseph's brothers, the older brothers, Leah's uh, or Dinah's brothers, deceive the men of Shechem, convincing them to get circumcised. There you go, Andy. There it is. Um, promising, promises, they promise them, hey, you know what? It's all good. If you want to be with our, with our sister and all the other women from our clan, that's all good. But you need to get 
uh, circumcised and, and all the guys go for it. They're like, cool, that sounds great to us. But while the men are healing from their circumcision, um, Simeon and Levi and the other brothers go into town and massacre all the men, like kill every single one of them um, to avenge their sister. And then they plunder all their money, like all their wealth. They take all their kids and their wives, taking them for themselves. Um, most of us have probably read or heard stories about terrible things that U.S. soldiers did in, during the war in Vietnam to avenge their um, brothers, fallen brothers. That's what took place at Shechem that day. It's like merciless um, killing. This is really important, I think, because it shows us a little bit about what's going on in the psyche of, of Joseph's brothers, like what kind of men they were. Okay, what kind of acts they're capable of. Like we can sort of think of them a little, little neutral, but then you kind of realize like, oh man, like what happens to a brain and a body when someone does these kind of acts? And then look at Jacob's response to what they did in Genesis 34, um, 30 and 31. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. See how many like I's and me's there were in that? But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So we learned that Jacob is more concerned about his own reputation and his own safety and his own wealth than he is about what happened to his own daughter. This reminds us that murderers aren't born, they're made. Right? Jacob's sons had been experiencing betrayal from their own father their entire lives. He was supposed to be the one that protected them and loved them and, and cared for them and their sister and their mom, but he didn't. And it twisted them up inside. They just couldn't take it anymore. There was no sense of justice from, from their father or from God. And so they're like, we got to take matters into our own hands. And the tragedy in that is that they lose themselves in that process. They betray their own humanity. They become less human. They enslave their own minds and their own hearts. So I've been asking myself, and I want to ask you this week, how do you feel towards those who have betrayed you? Do you dream of harming them? What happens in your dreams? Do you ever like yell at somebody in your dream or fight somebody in your dream or hurt somebody in your dreams? Do you fantasize about someone's downfall or their destruction? Do you celebrate their losses? I do. A lot. In my dreams or in my daydreaming, fantasizing, or just when I experience news of someone who has betrayed me. I have countless times been corrected by Romans 12 verses 17 through 21, it says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. 
If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then sometimes I'll like wish them well, and I'll be thinking that'll show them and that'll heap burning coals on their head and it's just as ugly. So that's the backdrop of what's happening. That's where the brothers are at. And so a little while later, these brothers are back in that same region of Shechem, okay? With Jacob's flock, letting them pasture, okay? That's why he sends Joseph to check on them. Like, how, how is my flock doing, right? I also wonder, like, why would Joseph agree to go, right? He knows, like we, he knows how hated he is already. Jacob knows how hated he is, so it's unwise to send Joseph alone. Jacob should be thinking. But I was wondering this week, I wonder if Joseph is looking for a little bit of redemption with his brothers. Remember when he was young, that he was out in the, in the fields with his brothers, and he comes back and brings a bad report, right? We talked about like a potentially untrue and evil report of his brothers. Maybe he's thinking... I can come back and speak well of my brothers and find myself in better graces with my brothers. But what we learn is that it's just too late for that. It's too late for that. Verse 18, they saw him coming from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. These battle hard, violent, envious, hating men see a chance. Say this isn't second degree, this is first degree premeditated murder, okay? Their, their betrayal was already in motion and they're seizing this opportunity. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Notice they're still very hung up on that. One of the most striking things as I was studying the passage this week to me was how the brothers refer to Joseph, not by his name, but instead this dreamer. They had labeled him and named him, renamed him based on what they perceived to be his greatest fault. I don't know if that's happened to you, but I've experienced that a couple times in my life. When I was young, very young, I was nicknamed egomaniac. You're laughing because you're not surprised because you know me, okay? But that name stuck with me. It was really painful. It was the reason given to me as to why people didn't like me. It became a part of me that I worked hard to hide as much as possible. Like if you don't want to be shunned and betrayed and unwanted, CJ, just really dial it down, bud, okay? Then in college, I had a friend and he got married straight out of high school and his wife got pregnant in their first year of marriage. 
Um, and so here I am living this carefree college life and he's working multiple jobs and he was super jealous of that. Um, and so he loved to sort of point out to me um, how I knew nothing about what it was like to be an adult and all I cared about was myself. And so he would refer to me sarcastically as Mr. Responsible, pointing out anything I did that was irresponsible or flaky. And that name stuck with me. Okay, this past year I've been doing a lot of work with my counselor and a lot of it's been around this exaggerated pressure that I feel to be responsible for everyone and everything around me. Mr. Responsible. Names and labels attach themselves to the depths of our soul. They wreak havoc on our relationship with others, with God, and with ourselves. Dear brother and sister, while the world labels you according to your greatest fault, Jesus calls you beloved. Agabetos. It's the same word that God the Father refers to Jesus by when Jesus is baptized by John in Matthew 3.17. It's how Paul refers to believers all throughout the book of Romans. And it's the way he referred to us in this reminder in Romans 12 to not seek revenge. I want you to hear from me this morning, if you're struggling, that it is your rightful identity as a child of God to be his beloved. Nothing anyone calls you ever can replace that word. There is no other name that can be more strongly attached to your identity. Brothers and sisters, you are not the sum of your greatest faults. You are the beloved son and the beloved daughter of the God who made you. Would you let Jesus speak that over you this morning? Would you let him call to mind those labels and those names you were given growing up and maybe even more recently? And would you let him replace that right now with the word beloved? One of the things I love about this church is that we are lighthearted and self-deprecating, willing to laugh at ourselves and each other. But let's be careful, okay? Let's make sure that we don't go over the line with sarcasm and diminish each other's value with name calling. Even if it seems innocent or it seems okay, let's just be careful, okay? Let's also be careful not to reduce each other down to our Enneagram number, okay? You're not your Enneagram number. Your Enneagram can help you identify some core motivations, things that can help you pay more attention to how you're wired and how you're driven, but it doesn't define you. You are God's child, his beloved. Joseph is God's beloved, and we know that because he spares his life by way of Reuben's conscience. 
verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Okay, so Reuben has a little moment. I wish I had more time, but um, I question Reuben's motives because it's not like he told Jacob that his son was still alive later, but we don't have time for that. Um, but anyway, God spares his life. So when Joseph came to his brothers, and now Reuben's gone, he's gone off to, to shepherd the sheep. The rest of them strip him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, it tells us, and there was no water in it. Okay, so they don't kill him, but they still assault him. They strip him of his coat, right? And even more so, his dignity. They've stripped him of his name, calling him this dreamer. And they throw him into a cistern that was meant to hold water, only this one is empty. Okay, cisterns were about 20 feet down. Try to imagine how deep that is. That's close to the height of a two-story house. Okay, so for all we know, just being thrown in the pit would cause Joseph some kind of injury from the fall alone. Compare this scene to the one in Joseph's dreams. Just like in his dreams, Joseph is in the center with all his brothers around him. But this time, they're not surrounding him to bow down to him in honor but instead to get a better view of him and his despair. Instead of standing above them looking down, Joseph is staring up at them from the pit. Reuben later in the story recounts the scene when he's later with Joseph. In Genesis 42, 21 says, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Kent Hughes in his commentary on this says, like a pack of dogs, his nine brothers were upon him, scratching and pulling the hated coat from him and likely his remaining clothing, finally dumping him like a dead body into a pit so deep and vertical that he could not climb out. And then look what it says in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. I can't think of a greater sign of their pathology than this. No hesitancy, no remorse, no anxiety about what they've done that might rid them of their appetite. No, they are relaxed and satisfied with their actions. They had finally had their sweet revenge. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt to become a slave. We focused a lot last week and this week on Jacob and the brothers. And I was thinking about that this morning. It's helpful to get a sense of kind of Joseph's family. But I was thinking, why, 
asking the Lord a little bit, like, why have you led me in this way? And why, why is this coming up in the way I'm writing these sermons? And I thought about it and I was like, I think because for me, when I read the story of Joseph, what I want to do is play Joseph in the story, right? I want to identify with him and think about all the sort of Josephness of my life. But what I was struck by the Holy Spirit this morning on my way here was like, CJ, you're actually a lot more like the brothers than you are like Joseph. You're a lot more the betrayer than the betrayed. But let's focus on Joseph. What's going on in his mind? What's going on in his heart? In an instant, his life has been completely turned upside down. He has just experienced betrayal at the hands of those, those closest to him. And his life is basically over, right? Reuben says they could see that his soul was in distress or in anguish. He pleaded with his brothers and they didn't listen. In this moment, laying injured and bruised at the bottom of a pit, Joseph has nowhere to look but up. Okay, he had spent his entire life looking to Jacob for protection, looking to Jacob for provision, and looking to himself, trusting in his own self, his own dreams, his own sense of his future, and all those safeguards are now gone. He's now on the way to slavery and has no one but the Lord. God never throws us in the pit and he doesn't call us by the name of our worst offense, but he does let us fall in sometimes. And he does let others throw us in sometimes. And he does that so that we will look up and find him. We're all laying at the bottom of some pit today. Whether we are thrown in or whether we fell in on our own. Lots of struggles, lack of direction, a sense of futility and meaninglessness, a troubled marriage, the unfulfilled desire to be married, infertility, navigating a toxic work environment or oppressive boss, experiencing a scarcity of resources, mental illness, self-doubt, self-hate. And we, like Joseph, are faced with a decision. We have to decide whether we're going to be like the brothers who take their betrayal and betray themselves or take responsibility for our situation, decide we're not gonna blame others and that we're not going to stay a victim. Now I'm gonna try and thread a very fine needle here, okay, in 2021 in San Francisco. Let me say this very clearly. God cares deeply about all human suffering. He cares about justice. He is on the side of the oppressed. But in the scriptures, God calls all people to take personal responsibility, to navigate their worst 
circumstances. And it's always for the sake of that person's highest good and God's ultimate glory. There's a, a licensed therapist and theologian and pastor named Henry Cloud. He has a book called Changes That Heal. It's one of my favorite books I've read in a long time. It's such a good book. And Cloud has seen countless clients in his practice over many, many years, and many of them have suffered horrible traumas. And he has, he has lots to say about this idea of victimhood. And what he has to say echoes many in the counseling world who have worked very hard to help their clients av um, avoid the snare of a victim mindset. He says this in his book. He says, many times people sin against us when exercising their freedom. And we are responsible for dealing with the injury. Remember, he's not just talking about like normal day-to-day -day things. He's talking about like major trauma on people. We are responsible for dealing with the injury. If we don't, we will stay stuck in a blame position, powerless against their sin. This victim mentality keeps many people stuck in their pain. Those who don't take responsibility for their lives remain stuck because they want other people to change. They want others to make it better, and often those people will not. As a result, they are in bondage to others. Freedom comes from taking responsibility. Bondage comes from giving it away. Gerald Corey is an academic who teaches counseling theory, and he echoes this, saying this, although oppressive forces may be severely limiting the quality of people's lives, we can help them see that they are not solely the victims of circumstances beyond their control. Although our freedom to act is limited by external reality, our freedom to be relates to our internal reality. Notice that both Cloud and then Corey here, who have spent countless hours with the victims of betrayal, make an appeal to freedom. They are saying, in essence, that as much as oppressive acts of betrayal enslave us, there is another kind of slavery, an internal slavery, that makes us betray ourselves and further oppresses us. That is what Satan wants for you and I. That's his end game, to double down. To, to take the betrayal that others have committed against you and then get you to then betray yourself through an enslavement of a victim mentality. What's so beautiful and profound about Joseph's story is that he doesn't take the bait on that. And we'll learn that at, at the end of the story. We'll see how he forgives his brothers. Joyce Baldwin says this, Though he could not know it, Joseph was going through an experience which was to become a major theme of the Bible. The godly servant, Jesus, was despised and rejected only to become the rescuer of those who abused him. The Lord shepherd was underrated, was struck down, and his sheep scattered. But the sheep found were the Lord's people. The way of the cross involved for Jesus betrayal by a friend as well as agony and death, but it was the way to life for all believers. To even more important than Joseph not taking the bait, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He willfully subjected himself 
to betrayal from both humanity and from God the Father in order to bring redemption to any amount of betrayal we will ever experience from others or even betrayal from ourselves. Jesus says in John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, right? That's the one thing that couldn't be taken from Jesus. And it's the one thing that can't be taken from us. It's the freedom of the will, the freedom of self. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross, all betrayal can be transformed into the pathway to life. The follower of Jesus says to themselves in the midst of great suffering, I cannot know the higher purposes of God for this present suffering. I can only trust that his higher purposes exist and are superior to my own definition of human flourishing. Do you believe that today? Let me say that again. The person who follows Jesus in the midst of suffering says to themselves, sweet baby boy. I cannot know the higher purposes of God for this present suffering. I can only trust that his higher purposes exist and are superior to my own definition of human flourishing. Have you taken the bait of victimhood? Are you stuck in the cycle of blame? Demanding that someone else take responsibility for your struggles. Would you consider today that to do that is to impose upon yourself an additional layer of enslavement that will cause you self-betrayal, that will lead to nothing good in your life? Joseph the betrayed turns his life over to God and says, have your way with me. Do what you must in my life. I belong to you. And so Joseph becomes the righteous. We'll learn about that next week. And finally, Joseph the savior. The story has been pretty hard so far. We've got like a pretty bad family system and then we have betrayal and abuse and harm. But man, starting next week, it's going to start getting good. We're going to see God like really change this story into something so beautiful. I'm excited to continue with you next week. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we just thank you for the gift of your word. It's amazing to us that we get to sit and listen to these stories that are thousands of years old and we have them right here in our hands to 
read and reflect on and realize that you have been present with humanity for all this time and that we are so similar to these characters and these players. Father, I pray that you would um, be at work in all of our lives this morning, that we would um, pay attention to um, ways we've been betrayed and how we have taken that up in our hearts and maybe um, re-enslaved ourselves through a process of blaming and victimhood. And maybe we, we have failed to believe that we are um, your beloved and that you've rescued us from all the horrible things that have happened in our lives. God, we love you and thank you and worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.